Hello, Gold Avenue family and friends. This is our fourth sermon in a series on the hope of Jesus' return. Today we're going to explore what the Bible says about the last great contractions that will occur before Jesus returns. Jesus himself gave us a number of signs which he calls the beginning of labor pains. And just like labor pains increase in intensity and frequency as birth draws near, so Jesus prophesies a period of intensifying pressure, offense, deception, and wickedness during which many fall away, which we talked about last week, even as the gospel of the kingdom is being preached to all people groups. When or after this has happened, says Jesus, then the end will come. So today we're going to read Jesus' very brief description of the end in Matthew 24 and some of Paul's pastoral counsel to the Thessalonians about this time of the end. But again, let's remember that there are at least 150 chapters of the Bible that describe some aspect of the events surrounding Jesus' return. So we're really only covering this in summary form today. And so I want to encourage each of you to study your Bible and to familiarize yourself with what it says about the day of the Lord or the day of Christ's return. All right. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the beautiful promise of Romans 8, that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love. You love us eternally, you love us faithfully, and you love us fully. And so we pray that you would saturate our hearts and our minds with your love, with your peace, even as we now listen to your sober warnings. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give each of us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church right now. Amen. So, reading from Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly powers 
will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And the word generation here can be, it's genos, and it can be translated generation or race. So we can hear Jesus saying, truly I tell you, this race, the Jewish people, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Or we can hear Jesus saying, this generation, in the generation in which these things occur, will not pass away until all these things have happened. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now moving over to 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 and 9 to 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power, through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. The word of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your holy and inspired word. Well, friends, I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but about 26 or 27 years ago, as I drove to work at McDonald's one morning, I thought I'd missed Jesus' return. My drive was a couple of miles, and normally I could expect to see uh, I could expect to pass cars regularly. I could expect to see people out in various locations. I could expect to see a hive of activity as the world woke up and went to work. But this morning as I drove, I didn't see a single soul. Not only a soul, I didn't see a car on the road. So not a person, not a car. The world was strangely and eerily still. And so my teenage imagination starts going wild. A rapture's happened in the night, and I've missed it. Now, I wasn't walking fully in the light at that time, and so I had reason to fear. But if I'd known my Bible better, 
I'd never have come to this conclusion. In the passages we read this morning, the Lord and Paul reassure all, when Jesus returns, you will not be able to miss it. Like lightning that comes from the east and is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, says Jesus. It will be worldwide news all at once. And yet, what I find so sobering about Jesus' description of his return is that despite the fact that it will be worldwide news and will be clearly preceded by a season of intense distress and deception unparalleled in church history, Jesus still finds it necessary to warn us to learn a lesson from the fig tree, to be alert because his return will come as a surprise to many, even in the church. Just like the days of Noah, he says, where people are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up till the moment the flood came, and it was too late. So apparently, like the frog boiled in ever-warming water, fails to recognize and jump out, so believers can and will become ever acclimated to the increasing wickedness and deception which surrounds and pressures us and fail to discern the times. Which again is why Jesus, in his love, warns us. So let's listen closely now to his final warning about what signals the close of this age. When you see this happen, says Jesus, it's your signal. What's this? When you see an abomination that causes desolation standing in the most holy place. When that happens, make for the hills, because there's a season of unspeakably horrible persecution and deception about to unfold. And though Jesus doesn't say how long the season will last, he does tell us that immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly powers will be shaken. And then, or at that time, the Son of Man will. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the nations of the earth will mourn as Jesus returns. Well, Jesus is here quoting Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. Both passages clearly depict God's judgment, his punishing the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. So Jesus unfolds this pattern of intense and unparalleled distress that's coupled with demonic signs and demonically inspired miracles which deceive many and is followed by God punishing evil and wickedness. All events that are spelled out in greater detail in Revelation as well as the Old Testament prophets and in other places. But what's important for us to notice and pay particular attention to today, again, is the sign that Jesus says precedes all of this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the most holy place, that's your signal, says Jesus. Well, what's Jesus talking about? What does he mean? Let's turn briefly to Daniel 9 and read verses 22 to 27. 
Gabriel instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now there's a tremendous amount in these verses, and we aren't going to try to unpack it all right now. But what we need to understand is that the angel Gabriel prophesies, brings a message from the Lord of 70 sevens, or periods of seven, 69 of which have already passed, and the 70th of which we are waiting for. The word sevens can also be be translated as weak, but translators are choosing not to do that here because weak in Hebrew has two distinct meanings. It can mean a period of seven days, or it can mean a period of seven years. Same word means seven days and seven years, and you tell by the context which one's being referred to. And so the reason we know it's referring to years here is because Gabriel says that there will be seven and sixty-two sevens, or sixty-nine times seven, which equals 483 years, from the time the command goes out to rebuild Jerusalem until the time the anointed one is put to death. Well, friends, we just finished uh, reflecting on the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah, and so we know the first decree to rebuild Jerusalem came from Artaxerxes in 457 or 458 BC. 483 years later takes us to 2627 AD, And since historians date Jesus' birth at 3-4 BC, 26-27 AD is exactly when Jesus is crucified, when the Anointed One, the Messiah, is cut off, as Gabriel predicted. So, next, Gabriel speaks of Jerusalem's destruction 
saying both the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the ruler who will come. This is an initial reference to the Antichrist who will presumably come from the footprint of the former Roman Empire because they are the ones who came and who destroyed Jerusalem. Gabriel says Jerusalem and the temple's end will come like a flood, which it does in 70 AD. And then he transitions by noting war will continue to the end. It's kind of like one of Jesus' warnings early in Matthew 24. It's part of the labor pains. And desolations have been decreed. Following this, Gabriel begins to speak of that crucial 70th and final period of seven years, which he said were decreed for, quote, your people, the Jewish people, and your holy city, saying, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that's decreed is poured out on him. Well, an abomination is something that's exceptionally loathsome, sinful, wicked, vile, something disgusting. To cause desolation is to bring devastation and ruin that, that is partnered with deep grief and sadness. It's a, it's a total uh, emptiness and destruction. So Gabriel saying to Daniel, and Jesus is echoing to all of us, you can expect someone who, after confirming a covenant with many, puts an end to sacrifice and offering, and sets up something particularly sinful and wicked that will bring devastation and ruin, grief and sadness for many. Or, as Jesus says, intense distress. Well, in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul elaborates on the nature of this abomination, writing, He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the abomination, or the wicked and the loathsome thing, which will bring great devastation, ruin, and sadness, is that a man will call himself God, and he'll call for all to worship him, and he'll do this by setting himself up in the temple, says Paul. Well, at this point, we might wonder, wait, what temple? Wasn't the temple destroyed? How is all this going to happen if there isn't a temple in Jerusalem? Good questions. Yes, just as Jesus predicted, not one stone was left upon the temple mount or base. Every single stone was pried apart and cast down by Roman soldiers aiming to get at the veins of gold and silver which melted as the temple burned. The temple treasury literally melted and the gold and silver ran between the cracks of the stones and so they pull all the stones apart to get at it. And literally every single stone was thrown down. So the, the western wall that you, you might know of, or which is also called the Wailing Wall, and that we often see in pictures today, is not a part of the temple wall. It's the wall of the temple mount, or the base. And, you know, when people go there to, to pray, and to, to um, many of them to 
to wail, it's because they long for the day. The Jews long, they desperately long and pray for the day when they'll be able to finally rebuild their temple upon that mount. We might think, well, if Jesus, the Messiah, has already come, why would they need or want to build the temple? Well, friends, these Jews don't know about Jesus. And they believe that, according to certain Old Testament scriptures, including Daniel 9, that the Messiah will not come until the temple has been rebuilt. Well, then, why don't they rebuild the temple right now? We might ask, well, remember Luke 21, as Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, he said it would be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We'll say more about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled in a moment, but for now we need to note that there's a certain very special spot on top of that temple mount that's occupied. The spot is actually a rock that marks the top of Mount Moriah. The temple's base is built on Mount Moriah. And if you remember the Genesis story, Abraham's story, you'll remember that the top of Mount Moriah is the spot where God called Abraham and he faithfully, obediently obeyed. He offered Isaac only to have the Lord provide a ram for sacrifice, foreshadowing the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of the world's sins. A very special spot, a special rock. And directly over top of that rock has been built a Muslim temple, otherwise known as the Dome of the Rock. As some have pointed out, this is both a symbolic and real attempt by Satan to replace God's gracious dealings through his sacrificial lamb with a temple and a religion that keeps people in bondage. Muslims declare this Dome of the Rock to be sacred space, and many people have said that World War III could be started by attempting to remove the Dome of the Rock in order to make way for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. So friends, it's not that the Jews aren't prepared to build. In fact, they've already not only drawn up plans for the temple that they will build, hope to build, desire to build, but they have also already fashioned all of the necessary temple instruments, the things that God commanded back in Exodus and Leviticus. They've built these again. They're ready to go, but they're blocked. And so understanding this dilemma that exists for Jews might help us to understand what it means that someone will confirm a covenant with many. It might very well be that a world leader helps to broker a peace treaty that finally allows the Jews to rebuild their temple and begin to offer sacrifices, which they so long to do. Now, at this point, some of us might be thinking, what does all of this have to do with the church? We don't need a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Didn't the church replace Israel as we move from the old covenant to the new covenant? And the strong answer from Scripture is, no, we don't replace Israel. As Paul explains in Romans 9-11, we are grafted 
in to Israel. Theirs, he says, is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promise, the patriarchs. And so when God prophesies a new covenant to Jeremiah, chapter 31, he says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Theirs are the covenants, and we are grafted in. We become recipients of God's grace to and through them by our faith in Jesus, the world's Messiah. But we do not replace Israel. We're grafted in. And God's purposes for Israel have not been completed. Just as Gabriel says to Daniel that 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So Jeremiah prophesies a time when they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Paul in Romans 11 also prophesies a time when all Israel will return to the Lord. And yet, this will not happen, says Paul, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Another reference to that age of the Gentiles. So what we need to hear here is that God is not finished in his dealings with the Jewish people. He has end-of-the-age purposes for them, which we don't have time to explore further right now. But right now it's enough for us to notice that God not only has these purposes for the Jewish people, but also that they include the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of a temple, which will become the focus of these end-of-the-age events that precede Jesus' return. So to summarize then, the sign which Jesus says is our signal that the last great contractions before his return are about to take place might be stated this way. Somebody will broker a peace treaty with many nations that will allow for the Jews to rebuild a temple and begin offering sacrifices again. After three and a half years, this man of lawlessness will reveal his true stripes, breaking the covenant, ending sacrifices, and setting himself up as God, calling for the worship of the nations in a way that brings distress so horrible it's unequaled from the beginning of the world. Now, when we consider the desolations of human history, including just last century world wars and holocausts and genocides, this is really bad news. This is horrible. Which is, again, why we're so thankful that Jesus gives us a double warning. First, when you see this happening, so when you see that, the rest of the world might be rejoicing that peace has finally come to the Middle East. These countries no longer want to wipe Israel off the map. They accept them. Israel has a temple. They're able to... Re Oh, the world is at peace and we're all united around this this one ruler who brokered it. Just how wonderful, how wonderful. And yet those who trust and listen to Jesus will know 
and will instead be preparing for world upheaval and intense distress for the church. Second, we'll be preparing with the understanding that we need to be on heightened alert against deception. This will be a time when Jesus says there will be great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Again, in an age where people may be praising the peace that is reached, they'll also be being drawn toward counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and 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 in all likelihood, the, the man of lawlessness will be embodying these counterfeit signs and miracles and wonders. And so, I think what's maybe most scary about this is the fact that, that large parts of the church currently have no hunger for or experience with real miracles, signs, and wonders. And so, how will the church discern the counterfeit if it's not familiar with and used to the real, if it has too little practical experience in doing the work of discernment, or as we talked about last week, since the church has already failed to discern current practices of lawlessness, particularly in the area of human sexuality, how will it escape, or parts of it escape, being among those about whom Paul spoke in 2 Thessalonians 2, when he wrote, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So again we see that the end of the age will bring an intensification in both wickedness and also righteousness. As Daniel 12 and Revelation 7 tell us, the righteous will be purified and made spotless through these pressures, but the wicked will be given over to a powerful delusion that results in their condemnation. And so, says Jesus, See, I have told you ahead of time, now, when he says, see, this means look, perceive, have your eyes open. Which is why he later says to them, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. In scripture, the fig tree is on multiple occasions used to represent Israel. So one way we can hear Jesus' warning here is like this, watch Israel. And when you see things beginning to happen with Israel, pay attention. Well, friends, in Isaiah 66, the end of the book, the end of the story, the Lord's looking ahead prophetically, and he asks, Who has ever heard of such a thing? Whoever, who has ever seen a thing like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? And he leaves the question hanging. But the answer is, yes. In 1948, Israel became a nation in a day in a way that's totally unprecedented in human history. Never before has a nation been conquered, scattered all across the face of the earth, and then somehow returned to the land that they were driven out of and received or been given or won it back. 
and particularly not in a day. But God already in his wisdom prophesied it. And yet, when Israel in 1948 became a nation, they did not have possession of Jerusalem, of their holy city. Well, in 1967, Israel took possession of Jerusalem. But she was not able to build her temple. She continues to long for and to prepare to build a temple. And as she does, large numbers of Jews are flocking back to the land of Israel. And all across the earth, Jews are coming to faith in Jesus, in Yeshua, as Messiah, in greater numbers than ever before. This is a well-documented, round-the-world movement, Jews coming to Jesus. And so even as Jews are being drawn to Jesus and they're returning to the land, it appears that the time of the Gentiles may be drawing near to a close, as in the end of this age. Now again, friends, I'm not making predictions about exact timing. It could be decades. But we remember what we said last week. We are in an age of intensification. If the physical and the spiritual often parallel each other, and knowledge is now doubling every 12 to 13 hours, what does that mean for the possibility of how fast both evil and righteousness could intensify on the earth? And so the question for us today, as we hear Jesus saying, look, I've told you ahead of time, is how do we prepare to endure, to live through, these last great contractions, if the Lord should call us to live through them. We're going to spend the next four weeks reflecting deeply on this as Jesus gives much guidance. But today I'd like to end by sharing something that Anna Blake wrote in response to the sermon from two weeks ago on labor pains. Anna, who's just given birth to her and Neil's second baby, shares that two things are necessary for helping labor to go well. First, she says, you can't work against the contractions. Tension in the body is counterproductive and makes contractions more painful. It's helpful for a laboring woman to surrender to and cooperate with the contractions. Well, as I reflect on the the wisdom of, the advice of surrendering to and cooperating with the contractions of wickedness intensifying and deception increasing of believers falling away and great hardship coming on the church and the world, it seems to me that only those Christians who are discerning the times, who are perceiving by the Holy Spirit what is happening, will be able to abide in deep peace to trust the Lord's faithfulness, presence, trustworthiness, goodness, and so to surrender to God's sovereignty and his care amidst the pressure of these contractions. So it's not, it's not agreeing with the evil in any way. It's not welcoming it in any way. It's recognizing what's happening in this season as evil intensifies and as we're, we're enduring these last great contractions. And it's not fighting against it, but rather trusting the presence of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, 
receiving the peace of the Lord through it. And what I'm saying is that those who lack discernment, whose hope is not fully set on the Lord's return, but is in fact set on achieving their own personal happiness in this life, they will resent the contractions. They'll work against the contractions. They will fight to return to normal. Their love may grow cold. And they may even grow bitter with God, who's bringing new creation to birth. Discernment and faith lead to peaceful surrender and working with God. Second, Anna shared about the need for deep encouragement through labor and the way in which, just beautiful way in which Neil's words repeatedly function to strengthen her as she struggled under the pressure of the contractions, wondering whether she could make it through. As he said, you are strong, you can do this. New strength would flow into her, coupled with a new resolve to persevere through this contraction. Friends, prophetic encouragement rooted in Scripture, will be needed to sustain and to strengthen and to encourage one another all the more as we see that day approaching. Well-timed words, God-given words, biblical words like those that Jesus and the angel in Revelation give the church as they endure labor pains. Prophetic encouragement will be vital for persevering through these last great contractions because friends the joy on the other side of them the joy that's set before us is far far greater than anything we will suffer or endure but we'll have to keep our eyes in each other's eyes on that joy on seeing our blessed savior on the feast to come on the new bodies we'll receive on the making new of all things on the day of healing and shalom, when all tears are wiped away and joy overflows and all things are brought together under one head, Jesus Christ. And the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again that in your love for us, you prepare us for what is to come. We thank you that in your love, you promise your constant, unwavering presence with us. We thank you in your love, you give promises that we can cling to, which are rooted in your unchanging nature and character. We also recognize, Lord, that your word says in Daniel 12:3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. We pray, Lord, today that you will cause us to be wise, that you will cause us to be those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that long for Jesus' return and that you will cause us to shine and to lead many, many, many to righteousness for your glory. We love you, Lord. Amen.